This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Belize, one of the world's great adventure destinations and a country that's created a comprehensive and common-sense COVID-19 safety system for travelers. Belize might be best known for its sandy beaches and turquoise waters, but its greatest gift is actually its diversity. There may be no other place on the planet with such an incredible combination of thrilling outdoor activities, natural wonders, and unique cultural history. I know this because I experienced it myself on my own trip to Belize. I'm a water lover, so I was drawn by the exceptional snorkeling and scuba diving. The country is home to the largest reef system in the Northern Hemisphere, where there are more than 500 species of fish. I had close encounters with sea turtles and spiny lobsters and a pair of black tip reef sharks. But I had just as memorable adventures on shore, where I visited a Maya temple, explored caves with ancient artifacts, and slept in a treehouse. I also swam at the base of a waterfall and listened to howler monkeys in the rainforest. I love those guys. Today, Belize is inviting travelers to do all this and more through their new Tourism Gold Standard Program. This extensive program certifies enhanced health and safety standards of hotels, restaurants, and tour operators so you can enjoy a reliably safe vacation. They've also created a new Belize Travel Health app to make your logistics easy and hassle-free. Thanks to all these efforts, Belize was recently awarded a safe travel stamp from the World Travel and Tourism Council in recognition of the country's enhanced health and cleanliness protocols. Learn more about how you can safely experience the wonder of Belize at TravelBelize.org. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. More often than not, the stories we tell it outside are about when things go wrong. Over the years, when people have said that we cover adventure, I've corrected them. No, I say, we cover misadventure. This isn't because we're dark-hearted. It's because we learn so much more about the human condition when we focus on our mistakes and our bad luck and how we handle ourselves in the most difficult situations, especially in wild places. Which brings us to this week's episode, an extreme example of a wilderness misadventure leading to the best thing of all, love. It comes to us from outside contributing editor Florence Williams, whose many features have explored the often hidden connections between nature and people. In this case, Florence uncovered a story where things went very wrong on a dangerous mountain, but somehow ended up turning out just right. When you're in your 20s, sometimes you do dumb things. You might feel invincible. You might feel you deserve every summit. It's your time to explore and expand yourself. It's definitely not when you want to feel constrained, especially not by emotional ties. This was exactly Jared Runn's state of mind in the summer of 2010. He'd recently graduated from college and joined the U.S. Air Force with an eye toward going overseas. For now, he was living on a base in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Yeah, I could not uh, imagine doing anything else than 
a young, you know, 24-year-old man full of adventure. Each weekend I would go down to Colorado and hike the 14ers down there and just look for any sort of adventure I could get my, my hands on. The previous summer, with virtually no mountaineering experience, he joined some friends attempting to climb Mount Rainier, which rises 14,411 feet in western Washington. Some of his friends suffered from altitude sickness, and the group was forced to turn back before reaching the summit. Rainier is the tallest mountain in the Pacific Northwest and one of the trickiest to climb. Most people don't make it to the top, and every year, a handful die. In addition to high altitude, avalanche-prone ice fields, and a long, steep ascent, the mountain generates its own often extreme weather. Now that Jared had been climbing more 14ers and learning a few things, he couldn't wait to give Rainier another go. And this time, he didn't want anything to hold him back. I was on a mission. I was uh, using some of my annual vacation days. I was there in Washington to climb the mountain. I had been training. I was in good physical shape. And yeah, I just could not wait to get going. This year, some of the same friends were joining him as before, including the trip leader, Dan, who'd been up the mountain several times, and his wife, Amber. There were also two guys Jared didn't know, Hanson and Mick. And then there was a woman named Diane, a childhood friend of Dan's they invited at the last minute. She did not look like a mountaineer, uh, really didn't have the the gear, or just by some of the questions she was asking, it, it didn't seem like she had maybe even been on a, a mountain before. Jared was right. Diane McKenney had never stepped foot on a glacier. Yeah, they convinced me that was okay. (laughs) My friends told me there was several people who didn't have experience that they had taken up and that I could kind of trust in their experience, um, that they would teach me the skills as we went. And I, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I mean, I honestly kind of thought it was just a long hike. Diane was 23, fit, a marathon runner. Jared found her attractive. This was not foremost on his mind. While she was just amazingly beautiful and had this big smile, uh, I was a little bit concerned in the back of my head that she might end up being a a problem on the mountain in, in my push for the summit. I actually first saw him at church. We were leaving that Sunday night to head up to the mountain, and he was um, with Dan and Amber. And I saw this, oh, just handsome man come in with uh, like an Indiana Jones style shirt, like one with all the like cargo um, pockets and with this chiseled jaw and red hair. And yeah, he was just really handsome. And I thought, oh, this is must be the guy that they said was coming with them. I had no idea. <laughs> Sexy cargo pockets. <laughs> mm, this trip just got more interesting. Were you, you were single at that time? I had just gotten out of, um, yeah, a series of just not great relationships. One that was really not good at all. That summer, I really felt like I needed to just kind of find myself. I didn't really want a relationship. No, I was not looking for love. Um, I was fresh out of college. I had many ambitions to climb other mountains to just see the world. My parents had gotten married later in life after they had 
adventures of their own. So I definitely did not feel the pressure uh, to settle down and get married right away. Diane had managed to borrow some gear and rent the rest. A good parka, an ice axe, crampons, climbing boots. At the trailhead parking lot, Dan had tried to help her pack her stuff and pull out extraneous items, like deodorant. Jared was annoyed. He kept forgetting her name. And you probably didn't know at that time that when you were borrowing all this gear and sort of packing your backpack that he was sort of rolling his eyes a little, like being like, I can't believe this woman is coming with us. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I got the impression from the beginning that he was really there to summit the mountain. Like, I did see myself as a liability to him. He wouldn't have said that, but I knew that he that's what he was thinking. It was a pretty afternoon when the group finally left the parking lot to hike up to the base camp cabin at Camp Muir at 10,080 feet. And so then the, the next day you had to get this sort of crash course in mountaineering. <laughs> yes, yes. So Dan gave us a a tutorial and basically um, self-arrest using your ice axe and, you know, how to kind of manage the rope in a climbing team and um, basically glacier travel, I would say, and if, if necessary, how to create like a simple system to belay someone out of a crevasse. I thought, oh, he's teaching this the worst case scenario, but that, I won't have to use that. (laughs) After a full day at base camp, the group settled in for a short sleep. The plan was to leave for the 4,000-foot vertical push at midnight, when the snowpack was safest. At the last minute, the climbers decided to leave a lot of their gear in the cabin. Jared left behind his camp stove and tent, his cell phone, and a bunch of food. We'd go light and fast. We started about midnight. We'd get to the summit maybe by 6 or 7 a.m. at the latest, uh, turn around and and be back at Camp Muir by 12 or 1 o'clock if everything went as planned. By the time the group of six set out in the middle of the night, some clouds were moving in. So that should have been a sign that there was a storm looming. And the Um, ranger and another group with the guide inside Camp Muir said that there was, uh, you know, a storm coming. But Dan, who was our guide, basically said, you know, they always say that. He's like, it's going to be fine. I've, I've taken a look, you know. And I was definitely trusting his judgment on all of that. After a few hours of climbing, the wind was picking up, and Dan's wife, Amber, started feeling woozy. She and Dan actually decided to turn around and head back to the cabin. So that left four of them without their most experienced member, but they figured that was okay because parts of the route were marked by flags that you could see even in bad conditions. Then another two hours in, Hansen started throwing up. Uh, This probably was about 5.30 or so. So we'd been hiking for roughly five and a half hours from the base camp. Uh, The weather was continuing to deteriorate. At this point, other climbing parties were abandoning their summit attempts because of worsening weather conditions. So Hansen was able to join some climbers heading back down the mountain. So now they were three, still headed to the summit in stormy conditions. Jared, 
Diane, and Mick. At one point, about a thousand feet below the summit, Diane's glove tumbled down an icy slope, and the two men set up a belay to retrieve it. It cost them time and energy. Mick was badly dehydrated. We did not think there were any other groups ahead of us. Um, the, the paying customers and their paid guides had turned around at that point. So the consensus was Mick, Mick wanted to turn around, and he ended up volunteering to stay where he was. So Diane had a decision to make. She was not sure if she should stay with Mick or go with me up to the summit. Uh, but growing up in Washington and looking at Mount Rainier, she figured she would never be this close again to the summit. And I'm thinking, well, gosh, you know, I'm feeling fine. I don't have any signs of altitude sickness. I don't know how close we are, but I feel like we could be, you know, 200 feet away. And why would I want to miss that opportunity? Was there a part of you that was also thinking, you know, I like this guy and I want him to like me and I'm going to keep going? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, yeah, I think it was, it was both. I mean, you know, it's hard for, because so much of what happens after this point, I see now that those events differently, but I think... Yes, I think I did want to prove to myself and prove to him that I was capable of doing this. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of a crush factor going on. Yes, I think there was a little bit of a crush factor. If Diane was trying hard to be game, Jared was barely noticing. At that point, I could not remember her name. Um, but it was also just the two of us, so... It was certainly past uh, asking her name again, and we just had our conversations back and forth. Did you have any misgivings at that point, knowing that you'd be responsible for her safety? I knew that I would have to bring her back safely and that I was the one with the training at this point. But, um, yeah, I, I had not given it that much thought. I was young, naive, yeah, just was not using my full frontal cortex. So there we were. It was probably 7 a.m. or so. Diane told me her ultimatum was, if we're not on the summit by 8 a.m., we're turning around. And as much as I did not want to sign up for that ultimatum, I had to respect her wishes. So we just pushed that much harder to get up to the top. The summit proved surprisingly elusive. The top of Rainier is a giant volcano caldera. It's pretty flat. We're just looking for anything that would signal summit, you know, and we searched for, well, what seemed like, I don't know, probably was 45 minutes to an hour, but it seemed like forever. But the weather continued to get worse. The visibility was very poor. We had trouble. We started to have trouble finding the route, but we did eventually make it to the summit. There was no view, of course. Um, we had some challenges warming up the camera just to get to get a photo, but we expect fully expected to follow the flags back down and we would reunite with Mick and be on our way. We're safe. We're in good spirits. Okay, let's get the heck out of here. And yeah, then little did we know <laughs> that was just the beginning. Thank you.
Earlier, we talked about Belize, one of the world's great adventure destinations and a country that's created a comprehensive and common-sense COVID-19 safety system for travelers. When I took my own trip to Belize, my most memorable experience was exploring a cave that held ancient Maya artifacts. It was called, well, it's best if I ask someone else to pronounce it. Aktun Tunichal Muknal. That's the cave of the stone altar. It's for those who really want to seek a thrill. That's Giselle Campbell-Steffen with the Belize Tourism Board. And she's right about the thrills. It's an hour-long hike through the rainforest to the cave with a couple of stream crossings. To enter the cave, you swim across a short pool. And then once you're inside, you wear a headlamp and a helmet. And there's more swimming. Once you reach into the main chamber, you're only allowed to wear socks. This is to preserve the integrity of the artifacts. Ceramic pottery, water vessels, tools, weapons. Their skeletal remains, as many as 14 have been discovered. Researchers believe the remains are from ancient sacrifices, dating back to around 1,100 years ago. Exploring the cave was one of the most exciting travel experiences I've ever had. And it was just one part of an amazing trip I took to Belize that also included exceptional snorkeling, relaxing days on a beach, great food, and very friendly people. Belize offers a remarkable variety of activities, including caves that are a lot easier to see, like the one that you float through in an inner tube. Learn more about the many adventures to be had in Belize and why the country was awarded the Safe Travel Stamp from the World Travel and Tourism Council at TravelBelize.org. By the time Jared and Diane began their descent from the summit of Mount Rainier at around 8.30 a.m., they'd been awake and moving for more than eight hours. The storm was getting stronger, but they thought the hardest part of their climb was over. Now all they had to do was follow a series of flags marking the upper section of the route, meet back with Mick if he was still waiting, and make it back to Camp Muir for a late lunch. So as we're following these flags, maybe 30 minutes after the summit, the flags left us at this massive crevasse. There was no way this was the way that we had approached the summit. Uh, we, we stopped, looked around, thought for sure there was a way or we must have missed our turn but we knew this was not correct that was a punch to the gut somehow the two had been following the wrong flags probably marking one of the routes used in winter when the glacier ice is more solid now they had to reverse course heading back up the mountain in a bid to find the right route after a while Diane spotted through the snow what looked like other climbers down below them. So we made our way as fast as we could to get to these climbers. These climbers ended up being rocks and ice. Now Jared and Diane were even farther down the wrong direction. There was no trail, no flags, and terrible visibility in a snowstorm on a treacherous ice field. They didn't even know which flank of the mountain they were on. Diane turned to me and said, you know, what are we going to do? What do we do now? You're the one with all the training. Where do we go from here? Um, so we, we certainly had some tense moments during this uh, discussion as, as we tried to brainstorm what to do next. Did you feel like she was sort of angry at this point a little bit? I think so. I think she probably overestimated 
my ability in the wilderness and the, the perhaps the skills or the training that I had. Uh, I was full of energy, but certainly did not have the textbook background to be in that situation. The best I could give her was, we've got to get down from here. We, we have to get down. We have to get out of the storm as fast as possible. She looked at me like I was crazy. Go down. Of course we need to go down. We're on the top of a mountain. We need to go down. The weather's bad. That's the best you can come up with. So we really don't know which way to descend. At this point, were you also starting to question your confidence in him? <laughs> like, hey, cowboy, what's the plan? Exactly. Exactly. And he really didn't have one. From here, we're going to try to navigate around the incredible amount of crevasses, choose the best route that we can take, and we'll take one crevasse and, and one foot at a time. We knew that we were lost. I mean, I'm just trusting him and trusting God for our protection. The mountain became a lot bigger at that point. So not long after we started just our descent of sorts, we came across kind of a, a wall of rock and ice that was too steep for me to descend. First of all, I didn't really have good like down climbing skills and ice climbing skills. And he felt like it would be better for him to belay me down and then just make holds with his ice axe and, and go down from there. And that was our kind of first round of that. There was going to be several more of, of those moments of needing to rely on each other. Hours and hours went by. They were out of food, their water was frozen, and they had no stove to melt snow to make more. Each time they came to a new crevasse, they'd have to walk back and forth until they could find a safe place to leap across. Jared would go first. Then Diane would throw her pack to him, and then she would leap. At one point, the lip of a crevasse gave way, and she almost tumbled straight down to her death. By pure luck, she fell backward instead. Did that impress you? Were you like, hmm, this girl is made of more than I thought she was? It certainly did. I was not expecting her to have that amount of grit and stick-to-itiveness that uh, when I first saw her in the in the parking lot there, this beautiful blonde girl um, who I was concerned about just staying on the trail and staying on her own two feet. And here she was navigating uh, the Mount Rainier crevasses and down climbing on different vertical sections uh, with ice axes. I was, I was very impressed. They'd been out for almost 17 hours when they came across another big obstacle, a large crevasse with a narrow snow bridge across it. And Jared thinks he can kind of walk across it. And I'm like, no, I, I really don't dress that way. And so in order to go any other direction, though, we would have to climb back up and go all the way around. And I'm just so exhausted 
um, at this point, I'm like, I cannot go up anymore. So you're going to have to promise me that we're going to go down from here on out. And he's like, I can't promise you that. I am, you know, I have no idea what's to head. You're probably going to have to go up several more times. You can do this. So after a, a few minutes of debate and going back and forth, I was able to get her to traverse back. And we looked for a different spot where I could repel her down. And I told her, look, we're going to have to traverse back this extremely challenging part that we've just covered. And again, she was not having it at this point. He kept reassuring me that I was capable and that we had to keep moving. So uh, we did climb back up. He lowered me down the full length of our rope. I just tried to keep her spirits up, tried to keep her as mentally stable as I could and just try to encourage her to do her best and to continue on. Was it helpful that he was kind of giving you these pep talks? Like, did you believe him? Yes, yes. Actually, that made a huge difference in his his optimism, his positivity, and just kind of that reminder of like, you know, stay in this, like, you know, your body's exhausted, but your mind's, you know, much more powerful. And so that was definitely a help for sure. But their minds weren't totally working either, it turns out. In their weakened condition, they had tantalizing hallucinations. What we think we see below, which is really starting to tell of our hydration status and and kind of mental status at this point is I think I see ice fishermen and it's a camp and Jared's like oh yeah there's a camp that we would have gone by had we taken the other route but once they got closer they saw it was a mirage it was crushing at this point they'd probably descended to about 11,000 feet and soon it would be getting dark I'm sure it was altitude brain we were truly hopeful that there were other people out here and that they would be able to help us in, in the state that we were. At this time, Diane says, I'm done. I'm not going any further. I'm, I'm done for the night. I tried to talk her out of it. I wanted to continue to press on, to keep moving, um, but we really were in a very tight situation. Uh, where we stopped, there was a massive crevasse right in front of us. Crevasses to our right, crevasses to our left. The storm was blowing uh, these incredible ice pellets at, at that specific time. It felt like I was getting shot in the face with a BB gun. Were you worried about her at this point? I was worried about her, yeah. And you realized that I was exhausted. So one of the things that did make it into my backpack leaving Camp Mira was a lightweight shovel, and I was extremely grateful to have that. I quickly surveyed the area that we were in and looked for a snow mound or any sort of snow accumulation area where we could dig in. So he dug a, a little cave of sorts with a place to rest our heads, which he always reminds me I stepped on with my crampons on the way in. <laughs> and destroyed that and then tried to proceed to get into his sleeping bag with my crampons on, which also would have been a huge mistake. It was more like a snow trench than a snow cave. Jared said he thought it looked like a coffin, and it easily could have been. 
oh it was it was pretty horrible I mean if um it was probably better for me because I was so exhausted that I actually I think I did sleep I was sort of in and out of like a consciousness sleep mixed with almost like a dream state like how am I here right now and it just seemed like just this vast mountain was just gonna eat you alive it was a bad night they were cold and restless Jared was convinced there was something wrong with Diane's breathing. Sometimes it stopped altogether. It freaked him out. I was scared. I I didn't want anything bad to happen to her. I wanted to get her back to her family in the same condition that she started the trip. So I I, I was really scared when I didn't hear her breathing um, and was so thankful every time after I nudged her that she was she was still there. This was most certainly the worst and longest night of my life. Throughout the ordeal, Jared had saved Diane when she really needed it. He'd retrieved her glove on the climb up and belayed her down numerous cliff faces that he would then have to down climb, unroped. And he'd built a snow cave for them when she couldn't go on. But now it was her turn to save him. Because in the middle of the night, Jared was starting to lose his mind. At a certain point, probably, I think it was around midnight or, or 1 a.m., I had hit my wit's end. My feet were freezing. They were so cold. I couldn't feel my toes. I couldn't get any sleep. The time was not moving. I knew that if we started moving, I would warm up and we would be moving in the right direction. Diane, even in her compromised state, knew this was a terrible idea. She told me the storm was still raging outside. It's the middle of the night. We know for a fact that we're surrounded by crevasses. We need to stay in this ice cave. If I was by myself, I would have kept going down the mountain into the dark. And who knows, I probably would have pushed through a crevasse or made made a foolish mistake. So I'm forever grateful that she was there by my side. But Diane was not herself. Not at all. By morning, even though the storm had cleared, they could even see tree line below them, she seemed to have given up. I was definitely scared. And yet at the same time, I had also kind of come to peace with, like, not making it. You know, I've lived my life the way I kind of wanted to live it. And if this is my time to go, then that's what God's plan is. Then it's my time to go. And I was coming to peace with, you know, the, that I might not make it off the mountain. Diane did not want to move. She said, no, I'm going to wait for a helicopter or I'm going to wait for Jesus. I've had a good life. Uh, I'm staying here. And that was, man, I was not expecting to hear that. And I was certainly not in the same frame of reference that was so challenging I didn't know what to do so at that point I saw myself looking her father in the eye or looking Dan in the eye and saying yeah she didn't want to move so I just I built this shelter and then I went to go get help and I couldn't bring myself to terms with that that was not the right answer that was not what I was going to do he knew he needed to have a big hard talk with her Both their lives depended on it. But there was a problem. Here she was lying in front of me, telling me she's not going to move. And I can't even remember her name. 
I'd, I was so frustrated with myself, but I did not let that stop me. I knew that I had to convince her to keep moving on. He pulled it off. Diane got up. And then she found herself sensing the direction they had to go. And Jared listened. Eventually, she led them right back to Camp Muir. We could see Camp Muir. And we, I can't, yeah, I can't explain how, how excited and relieved we were. Start heading with kind of all the energy we can towards the camp. And Dan comes running down and grabs our backpacks and, you know, in tears and just like, oh my goodness, I can't, so, so glad to see you. And of course we are very glad to see them. And yeah, it's just a huge relief. Just an incredible amount of joy and happiness and just so many different emotions at that time. Yeah, that's a memory that I'll have the rest of my life. It was absolutely amazing. Jared and Diane had made some rookie mistakes, but in the end, they had kept each other alive. The first chance he got, Jared took Dan aside and asked him what the heck her name was. And then Diane, because he'd missed his flight, invited Jared back to her parents' house a couple of hours away to recuperate. I gladly accepted. Neither of them was just ready to say goodbye. I think we both kind of felt like there was a strong bond. Everything just seemed so like you're living on borrowed time, you know, like like what what else matters really besides just like people in your life. And, you know, why would I let this person go after all of that? And Jared, despite the fact that he had to return to Wyoming and that he didn't really want a girlfriend, couldn't stop thinking about her. The more and more I thought about it and I thought about her, I, I couldn't see life any other way. About a year later, they got engaged just before Jared was deployed to the Middle East. They've now been married for nine years. They live in Germany, where she works as a physical therapist, and he works coordinating humanitarian relief for the U.S. Air Force. A couple of years ago, they wrote a book about their story called Strangers in the Storm, Love and Survival on Mount Rainier. Well, so I guess I'm wondering... What is it about having such an intense experience together that, you know, makes you fall in love? Yeah, I would, I would say it gives you the experience of vulnerability and just being so, so dependent on each other that you have to really trust each other and sharing in those experiences really draws you together. It's that realization that, wow, these circumstances could have taken 20 years to come about, but we just came across them, you know, in a matter of days. Yeah, it was a a test tube there with with so many different challenges, uh, so many different emotions, um, both physically and mentally and emotionally. And spiritually, yeah, it was it was just the, the full spectrum, the full gamut that we experienced together in really such a short time. Like, honestly, I felt like he had seen me at my worst. 
and was willing to overcome that with me. And I felt like, wow, if we can get through this, we can get through anything. And here you were through it. You were encouraging and uplifting and positive. And, um, and I don't know why Jared stayed with me. I don't know what I added. <laughs> she's way out of my league. Whatever she's talking about, that's, uh, that's nonsense. <laughs> These are things you need in a long-term relationship. Sometimes you have days, like many of us have experienced over the last year, when you just want to crawl in a hole and not get out. Sometimes what you need to give or receive is not a pep talk, but some good listening, some deep caretaking. You need to know when it's time to peel off your partner's crampons and build her a snow cave. If we're going to go through life together, I'd... I want to know that my partner can get through some some very challenging times and what an incredible way to just man see her at her worst and and also me at my worst and and we both know that we'll still be there for each other. Every chance they get, Jared and Diane ski, hike and occasionally climb a mountain. They returned to the summit of Mount Rainier in 2018. It was a beautiful day. This episode was produced by Florence Williams and edited by me, Michael Roberts, with music by Robbie Carver. Florence is developing a series for this show, focusing on relationships of all kinds that have been catalyzed by time outside. If you have a story about love or grief, or a human connection that you want to share, please email us at podcast at outsideim.com. This episode of the Outside Podcast was brought to you by Belize, one of the world's great adventure destinations and a country that's created a comprehensive and common-sense COVID-19 safety system for travelers. Learn more about how you can safely experience the wonders of Belize at travelbelize.org.